Good morning. It's good to be back with everyone. I missed speaking last week, but I'm glad to be back up here and share a little bit of uh, God's Word with you this morning. But just a reminder, God is good. And all the time, God is good. Uh, If you have not been here for the last couple of weeks, if you're visiting or out of town or something along those lines, I wanted to to catch you up just a little little bit on the last couple of weeks. So two weeks ago, we introduced our theme for 2020. Uh, You see it on on the board behind me. It's the word FUSED. And FUSED is an acronym that stands for Fellowship, Understanding, Service, Evangelism, and Devotion. I hope you're starting to memorize these five words right now because those five words aren't just words to me. Those are, those are something more. They're an operating system for how we are, we are called to live in community for us. That we're called out of what is comfortable. That we're called out of what is cozy. And instead we're called to something that's radical and risky. That we're called to put our faith in action, in community, to do it amongst other people. And that's why I love Michael's words in communion. It's a, it's a call to love one another deeply. It's a call to love one another as Christ loved his church. And man, Christ gave his life for you, church, didn't he? Yeah. Amen. He did. And so the best and easiest way that I can think of for us to practice being fused is in the context of fellowship groups. You're going to hear me talking a lot about those throughout this year. I hope you are you're prayerfully considering joining one. Uh, as we continue to launch those, we'll be communicating more with you on that. wanted to at least remind you that, that Paul and Barbara host a fellowship group on Friday nights at their house. So if you'd like to talk with them about that, please do. Last week, we were incredibly fortunate to have a good friend of mine, Jonathan Anstead, come and talk to us a little bit about his story over the last seven or eight years, what God has done in his life and how he's moved uh, from, from a place of, of timidity and like his faith really not being a huge part of who he is to someone who is so sold out, so faithful that when he gets laid off from work, he hops on a plane and goes to Japan for three months to spread the gospel, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I hope you were encouraged by his message last week. But what I want you to see in his, in his story and in his message is how central and how core these five uh, pillars, if you will, uh, were in his life. That, that everything that he did in Japan focused on fellowship and understanding and service and evangelism and devotion. They were all fundamental to his experience in bringing the gospel, bringing good news, bringing hope to those people. And so his message last week was a powerful reminder from Ephesians 4. That God's purpose for us as believers has always been that we might equip one another, that we might build up one another to serve others until, this is from Ephesians directly, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul continues, then, it is then that we will no longer be infants. And so church, that's our goal. That's our goal every day, every week, every month, every year. Our goal is to move from infancy in our faith to maturity. Our goal is to trust the the truth and the reliability of God's word, to believe God's promises and to live not for this life, not for right now, but for the promise that is to come. Amen. And so central to that goal, without a doubt, to me are the words of the Gospels, the words and teachings of Jesus Christ himself. And so with that in mind, where we're going to be for the rest of the year is we're going to be, well, not just the rest of the year, the beginning of the year up through Easter is we're going to be marching through the Gospel of Luke. Now you might say, why Luke? 
Well, if you go back to our Advent series in December, where we talked about the arrival of Jesus Christ, you you may remember that we we covered Luke chapter 1, 2, and 3, almost in their entirety. And so for this, this is about continuity to me. Let's pick up the baton where we left off in December, and let's take this story all the way through Easter, all the way through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so for for the next 12 weeks, we're going to be marching through the Gospel of Luke together, and we're going to be doing that through the lens of Fused, looking at what, what Jesus has to say about fellowship and understanding and service and evangelism and devotion. And so that's how we're going to be teaching Luke. Those are the stories, the parables, the teachings that we're going to be covering over the next 12 weeks. And so with that being said, as we get started this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4 and put your your bookmark there, your finger there, or whatever it might be. Get your phone out if you want to do that. And then we're going to go to God in a word of prayer. And if you're, uh, if you're visiting with us or joining us for the first time, uh, one of the things I like to do as we, as we go to God in prayer is really think about our posture, like our physical bodily posture before our King and before our Lord. And so if you're able, I invite you to stand or invite you to kneel or invite you to raise hands. But think about how you would approach the God of the universe and approach him physically in that way in complete surrender. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the example that you set on how we are to live our lives. And we believe that you lived a sinless life, something that we could aspire to, something that we could strive for. And Lord, we recognize fully that we know we will never get there. We know full well that we have never gotten there, Father. We are all standing here guilty before you, Lord. And yet as we we embrace the bread and the fruit of the vine that we just took. Lord, we're we're proclaiming your death until you come back. We're proclaiming your atoning sacrifice that you have washed us clean. And we want to give you all praise and honor today. Father, your Holy Spirit is vital to us. And so in this room right now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be among us as believers. I pray that you would open our hearts and open our eyes and open our ears that we would hear the truths of your word this morning, that we would focus fully on what your word has to say to us, and we would think intrinsically about how we we can apply those those truths to our lives, how we can change, how we can grow, that we would be an ever-changing people, a people who are madly and deeply and radically in love with you. Father, you know our hearts. You know what holds us back. You know what holds me back. That, that there are always things that come up that hold me back from loving you fully. And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us, Lord, that you begin to tear those walls down brick by brick, that we could be more like you, grow closer to you, and love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, to give you everything that you deserve. Father, you are worthy, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You guys can be seated. <clears throat> So this morning, we are going to be talking about temptation, temptation, and the role that temptation plays in all of our lives, I think, but most specifically, since I'm the biggest expert on me, I think I can shed a little bit of light on how temptation has and and can often affect my life personally, because when I think about my life, I realize that temptation and I, we like, we go way back, 
way back, like to the very, to like day one, I remember various aspects of, of how I have encountered temptation. Those, those urges within us to do something that we know we ought not do, and yet we do them anyways sometimes. I think back to when I was five or six years old, I was in first grade, my friend Carlos came to school in a Mickey Mouse sweatshirt. Only this Mickey Mouse sweatshirt had no eyes because his little brother had torn off like the googly eyes from the Mickey Mouse sweatshirt. And he looked at us, a group of his friends, and he said, if anyone laughs at me, I'm gonna punch you. And so I don't know what it was, but something about the temptation of that moment, I said, ha 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 ha. I tried to provoke him. He did nothing. And so I did the only logical thing that you would do when someone doesn't punch you, you kick them. So I was tempted, I let go, and there it was. Or I think about that time when I was like eight or nine years old and my, my birthday was fast approaching and uh, I was a, a latchkey kid and so I would, I would get out of school at 2.30 and I would walk home from school and I would be home for a few hours by myself before my mom got off work and so that gave me two or three hours to basically kind of do whatever I felt like I wanted to do. Now what I was supposed to be doing was going home getting my homework done first, and then I could watch TV. What I actually usually did was go home, watch TV, and then cram to get my homework done before my mom walked in the door. But this one particular day, I thought, man, my, my birthday is coming up, and I really, really want to know what I got for my birthday. And I got three hours to kill, so I got a lot of time to look around to see what I can find. And so I went through closets, and I went through cabinets, and I opened up every door and under every bed that I could find. My mom's sitting in the room in the back right now trying to find my birthday present. And eventually I opened that, that HVAC furnace door, and there on top of the furnace are these two gifts for my birthday. And I, I, I was so psyched because I found them, but they were wrapped. <laughs> And so I had a, a decision to make. What am I going to do about this? I really, really want to know what's in that wrapping. And so as temptation often does, I had this little conversation with myself. Can I undo the wrapping, peek inside, and then wrap it all up without getting caught? And of course, little like angel devil, like, of course you can. All right, cool. So I grab the, the present. I go and sit down at the table, and I begin to unwrap. But there's something different about this. If you guys have ever unwrapped wrapping paper, it's hard but sometimes it's doable. Sometimes you can unwrap the tape without, she didn't wrap it in wrapping paper. She wrapped it in tissue paper. That is impossible. There's no way you can unwrap <laughs> tissue paper without getting busted. But I was like, I'm, I'm gonna try it anyway. And so I sat down and I, I committed to it and it tore and it tore and it tore and it tore. I'm like, I can do this. I can put this back together. She'll never know. So I was already committed. I, I went all the way through with it. I unwrapped my, my birthday gift. I saw what it was, man. It was a Wolverine action figure from X-Men. It was exactly what I wanted. My mom had got me exactly what I wanted for my birthday, and I was so psyched because it was so hard to find Wolverine. I had all the other guys, but I didn't have Wolverine. That's what I wanted. But now I had a problem. How am I going to put this thing back together? I just tore all this tissue paper back up, so I got out the scotch tape, and I did my best and tried to convince myself, yeah, it looks pretty much like it did when I found it in the closet. It didn't. But I put it back on the furnace, and then kind of waited with anxiety, wondering what, uh, what my birthday was going to hold. And I gotta tell you, October 11th came. I, I don't often remember birthday mornings very much over the years, but October 11th came and I was, uh, I was confronted with the, the, the harsh reality that I was now going to be found out. And so I remember sitting down that morning 
at the table. My mom was a good mom. She always made us breakfast. And so I sat down, but ate my scrambled eggs. And this, this birthday had a different feel to it because normally there's like a lot of pomp and circumstance when it's your birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. And you give hugs and there's, there's smiles and stuff. And I'll never forget this. My mom walked by while I was eating my breakfast and just set the gift down, said happy birthday and walked off. And that was it. It was silence. Her silence spoke way louder than words because she knew what I had done. Do you remember this memory? Okay, yeah. <laughs> We've never actually talked about this until today. So, uh, um, yeah, so the, that, the, the silence spoke louder than words. I got to enjoy my Wolverine, but the guilt still stays with me 25, 30 years later, whatever it is. So it, it, was, a, it was effective silence, I'll put it that way. But that, that's the kind of innocent temptation that comes in, right? It's like there's not, nothing really is harmed when you go through those things. But what about those times when temptation really isn't as innocent. Because we, we all deal with those kinds of temptations, right? Sometimes temptations that we face can have life-changing consequences. Sometimes they have life-altering consequences. Because I have these other vivid memories from my youth. Things that, that really impacted me much more deeply than unwrapping a birthday present early. Not long after that memory, and I'll, there's a a quick caveat this has nothing to do with my mom but not long after that memory I came across some magazines that were not for my eyes if you get my drift and as God is my witness I liked the pictures I saw on there I did that wasn't something that was taught to me that wasn't something that I, I liked but I like what I saw in those in those pictures it was there was something about the way God created me to like what I saw. I was designed to like what I saw, but I was never designed to experience those things in that way. And yet despite that, and without my knowledge or permission, a seed had been planted within me. It was a temptation to see what I saw again and again and again and again. At times, it was a temptation that seemed stronger than I knew how to resist, but that temptation was there. And other temptations would come, and they would take root. The temptation to eat and eat and eat. Like, I thought to myself, man, I love food so much. I should have more of it and more of it and more of it. And eventually, I'd, I'd feel full, too full, so I'd stop. But the next meal or the next day would come, and I'd be presented with the same choice that I could eat as much as I wanted or needed, or I could eat as much as I wanted. And I almost always chose what I wanted. And I'm gonna repeat those words because I think they're important for our, our message today. I almost always chose what I wanted, what I wanted. That became something of a theme for my life. But you know what I'd suspect? I'm not really alone in that, am I? I'm not really alone in that. I bet there are people in this room who know they shouldn't go get seconds at dinner. But they do it anyway, just like me. And I bet there are people in this room who also came across magazines or websites with pictures or videos that were not good for them, that they also liked. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that 100% of the people in this room have dealt with are currently dealing with or will deal with some form of temptation in your lives. Those temptations may include people who work too much. 
They may include people who work too little. They may include people who exercise too much or people who exercise too little or people who spend too much or play too much or lie too much. Insert whatever word you, you want to right here. In 1970, Stanford did a psychological research study, uh, an experiment, if you will. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Anyone familiar with the Stanford Marshmallow? Okay, we got one. I thought this was more widespread. Um, the first version of this experiment did not involve marshmallows, but basically what they did was researchers brought kids into a room. It was a, it was a stripped down room, a sterile room. There was no distractions, nothing to play with of any kind. They set them down at a table and they, and they gave them one of two things. They either gave them five pretzel sticks or they gave them two animal crackers and a promise. They said, if you can go 15 minutes without eating what's in front of you, and then we will give you a second snack. And then they left the room and they watched. And they watched these kids squirm and try to do anything they could to distract themselves because they wanted that second snack. It was a, it was a research study in delayed gratification. Now here's what they said. They said some children covered their eyes with their hands, some rested their heads on their arms, or found other similar techniques for averting their eyes from the reward objects. Many seemed to try to reduce the frustration of delay of reward by generating their own diversions. So they talked to themselves, they sang, they invented games with their hands and feet. They even <laughs> tried to fall asleep while waiting. They thought, man, if I just sleep through this, I don't have to endure it. One kid su successfully fell asleep in 15 minutes in their study. Now there are a lot of facets to that experiment that took place over, over many, many years. Eventually the marshmallows came in. But the foundation of everything that they were testing for began with the power of temptation. That is where the power began. It's one of the most powerful and alluring things in our lives. I came across a quote from Mae West. I don't know Mae West, she was before my time. Does anyone here recognize that name? I think she was something of a sex symbol in her day. I'm not sure, but she says this. She said, I generally avoid temptation unless I can't resist it. How many of us can relate to those words? Or Oscar Wilde, I can resist anything except temptation. Or Mark Twain, there is a charm about the forbidden that makes it unspeakably desirable. And all of those are great quotes. All of those are things that I've experienced and you've probably experienced. But it was C.S. Lewis that said something about temptation. They put a spin on it that I think is too good not to share. This is what he says. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie, that only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes, simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very, very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, 
is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. The only complete realist. I want to ask you, what is Lewis talking about here? What did Jesus deal with? And so with those words, I invite you to look at Luke chapter 4 with me. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13, probably more specifically 1 through 12 today. And so as we begin here, Jesus, we talked about context a little bit earlier today. Uh, As we begin here, Jesus is 30 years old. He has just been in the wilderness with John the Baptist where he was baptized into the Jordan River. And you guys probably know this scene. Jesus comes up out of the water. We're told that the Holy Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. And then a voice comes from heaven that says, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And this moment is really, really important in Jesus' life because it marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so what's the first thing that Jesus is to do now that he's begun his ministry? It's it's rather odd, but look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now, if, if you know anything about Scripture, uh, you know that there's great, a great deal of significance surrounding the number 40 in Scripture. It's a number that comes up over and over and over again. Noah, you know, he's on the ark and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Israel, when they're in the wilderness and they're walking around in the desert, they walk for 40 years. Uh, Goliath is camped outside uh, with the, the Philistines trying to fight the Israelites for 40 days before King David shows up, or, or David at the time. Elijah walks for 40 days to Mount Horeb, and on and on and on it goes. There's, there's examples of 40 days over and over and over again throughout the text. And so the Bible loves to use numerology. And if you know anything about how the Bible uses those, sometimes we recognize those numbers are not meant to be taken literally. And so my point is, it's entirely possible that Jesus could have spent exactly 40 days in the wilderness, or it's entirely possible he could have been there for some prolonged period of time. Maybe that was roughly 40 days, and 40 just simply represents that number. Whatever the case may be, the important part of this text that I want you to pay attention to is twofold. And I'm going to contradict myself here. Number one, Jesus is alone. He's alone. He goes into the wilderness by himself. He's not there with apostles. He's not there with, with John the Baptist, or should, I should have said disciples. He's not there with anybody. He's by himself. And yet the contradiction is that Jesus was not alone because he had just been baptized and he received the gift of what? He gets the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so he's accompanied by the presence of God into the wilderness. And it's that second part in the story that I think makes all the difference because it's when we are alone that we are always most vulnerable. I I use this example a lot, but you go back and you watch, you know, Discovery Channel or animal programs or whatever. Which zebra or which gazelle is always the one that is most vulnerable to the lion? It's the one that gets isolated, right? It's the one who is alone. I think of Lord of the Rings. I love to use Lord of the Rings. Obviously, with, there, there's the temptation of the ring itself in, in the book, and there's some rel- relevance there. But if you've, if you've ever seen the end of the first movie, who's seen the Lord of the Rings? Got a few people. I'm, I'm embarrassed. There should be more of us who raise our hands. Um, 
But there's a scene where, where Frodo, he's carrying the ring, and his entire purpose is to get this ring to Mordor so he can destroy it. And he's got this small group of people, like the Fellowship of the Ring, that are accompanying him on that journey. And they get caught up in, in this fight. And Frodo goes, you know what? I'm going to break away from the group. I'm going to go on my own. And I'm going to do this because I don't, I don't want to be part of this group. It's not going to end well for me. And his friend Sam sees him and he says, no, like I'm coming with you. He says, no, Sam, just stay. He says, no, I'm coming with you. Sam can't swim. He almost drowns in a river trying to follow Frodo. But he says, no, I'm, I'm coming with you. Why, does, why is Sam so bent on making sure that he's with Frodo? It's because he knows that Frodo is weakest and most vulnerable when? When he's alone. So it should come as no surprise, I think, to us that in Jesus' aloneness, that is when the devil shows up. And so in today's text, the devil's going to try three different things while Jesus is alone. First, he says, all right, Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Why is this a temptation? Well, I mean, it's, I think it's obvious, right? Jesus has been fasting. He's out in the wilderness for 40 days or so, and he's hungry. It's a, it's a chance to satisfy the desires of his flesh. We all know what it's like to want to satisfy the, the desires of our flesh, whether it's hunger or any number of things. But Jesus looks at him and says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And if you're reading Matthew's account of the same story, Matthew adds a second line. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we move to the second temptation. And it's worth noting that, that Matthew and Luke, while they tell a very similar uh, story of how this goes down, they actually flip-flop the second and third temptations. So what comes second in Luke comes third in Matthew and vice versa. But in Luke's account, the devil takes Jesus up to a high place, like on top of a mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He shows him all their splendor. And he says, Jesus, I will give you all their authority. I will give you all their splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And I think it's, in essence, it's the devil looking at Jesus and saying, I know why you're here. I know why you've come. You've come to be their king. You have come to establish your kingdom. But let me just save you the trouble. If you will simply just bow down and worship me, agree to worship me, I'll give it to you freely. You don't have to go through all this hard work that you're going through. I'll just give it to you. It takes one small step. And Jesus says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so the devil tries one last trick, one final temptation. He takes Jesus up to Jerusalem. He takes him up to the very top of the temple. And he says, okay, if you want to play this whole scripture game with me, I can play too. He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written in scripture, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He says, Jesus, the Bible says the angels are going to save you. So just jump down and show me. If you have ever known someone who uses the Bible irresponsibly to support their agenda for whatever it is they're trying to say, here's your proof. It's nothing new. It's been going on since the beginning of time. It's an old trick. But Jesus hears what Satan says. And he says, 
it is said, or in Matthew's gospel, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so I want you to stop for a moment, just for a moment right here, and I want you to ask yourself this question. Like, what exactly is going on here? What exactly is going on here? Why these specific temptations? Why were they done this way? And what do they teach us about temptation itself? You know, this week I spent hours reading a lot of commentaries and articles about what each and every temptation meant and how we should apply it and so on. And you want to know something? Every commentator I read viewed the text a little differently. Everyone said, oh, well, you see what's happening right here is this is the temptation to blank, the temptation to compromise, the temptation to do signs and wonders, the temptation to get religious, the temptation to get political, and on and on it goes. They all wanted to give it a label. And so what's clear is the academic world isn't necessarily united on how they view these temptations and how we are to use them. But there's one thing that becomes crystal clear to all of them, and, and even to you if you have a habit of reading the footnotes in your Bible. It's this, that this 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus is deeply and it is irrevocably linked to Israel's experience in the wilderness in the desert. That just as as they spent 40 years wandering around the Sinai Peninsula after Moses had gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, Jesus is going to spend 40 days in the wilderness. And while they're on that journey, there's this iconic scene in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses addresses the entire nation of Israelites. They're just wandering around for years and years and years, and they all come together, and Moses has a message for them. In fact, Deuteronomy is like a series of three enormous speeches for Moses. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses goes, hey guys, here are the Ten Commandments. Here is what God has said we should not do. And so you get into Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he segues into some famous words. He says, Israelites, he says, these are the commands. These are the decrees and the laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you and your children and the children that come after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees, by keeping all his commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy a long life. And so he says, hear, Israel, hear and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land that is flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And if you've ever heard the statement, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that's the line that comes next. But it's as this speech progresses for Moses that we begin to hear those familiar words that were echoed by Jesus in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. Satan says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And what does Jesus do? He goes back to this speech, Moses' speech in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The time when God had led the Israelites or fed the Israelites manna or bread from heaven. And here Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8, remember how the Lord humbled you? Remember how he caused you to hunger and then fed you with manna? which neither you nor your ancestors had known. He did that to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but to teach you that but man lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan says, okay, 
Jesus, I'll give you all authority and splendor. Everything, it's been given to you. I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus goes back to this speech in Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, verse 13. The warning that, that Moses gave the Israelites to remember their God. Moses says, Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take your oaths in His name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. And so Satan tries one more time. All right, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Jesus again goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, this time verse 16. And he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Now Massa is the, the place where Moses brings water out of the rock for the Israelites. What I want you to see is there's something deep and there's something significant and there's something biblical about connecting these two stories. Israel in the wilderness and Jesus in the wilderness. That just as Israel had passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus would pass through the waters of the Jordan River at baptism. And just as Jesus, or just as Israel, had been led by a pillar of cloud and fire, the very presence of God through the wilderness, so Jesus, now full of the Holy Spirit, would be led by the Holy Spirit of God, the very presence of God through the wilderness. And just as Israel had faced temptations over hunger, and temptation to run after other gods, and temptation to run after idols, and temptation to test the Lord, so Jesus was now tempted with all of those things as well. And yet in every respect where Israel failed, Jesus demonstrated that he would succeed, that he would do what they never could. And so it's the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 that sums it up so well for us. He says, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He said, all those high priests that you guys have had, they have not been able to empathize with your weaknesses, but we have one who does. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Church, it's about mercy and grace. And so Jesus' journey into the wilderness was a journey that modeled for us three key ways to become victorious over temptation. And I use the word victorious because Dan used it earlier today in his prayer. Number one is this. Temptation is most deadly when we are what? Alone. Say that again loud for me. Temptation is most deadly when what? Alone. When we're alone. Number two, by the power of the Holy Spirit, temptation can be overcome. Is it your power? No. Is it my power? No. It's the power of who? The Holy Spirit. And number three, the Holy Spirit's weapon of choice is knowing the Word of God. There is no substitute for knowing the Word of God. That is the Holy Spirit's weapon of choice. And so church, what we need to see and understand about temptation is that when you look at the essence of Satan's schemes to tempt Jesus, you realize that temptation is always the subtle seduction to rise. The subtle seduction to rise. Think about those words. I'll explain what I mean. There's a commentator that put it this way. A real temptation is an offer not to fall, 
but to rise. The tempter in Eden did not ask, do you wish to be as the devil? He asked, do you wish to be as who? Say that loud for me. God. Do you wish to be as God? Temptation is always the temptation to increase me. The, The temptation to climb the ladder of my own power. To climb the power of my own significance. Temptation is the seductive pool to make myself king in lieu of God. It's the pool to get to the point where I say, not thy will, but my will be done. And so when my will supersedes God's will, I have created a new God. And I have created a new king. And his name is me. Say me. 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 (laughs) So I want you to think of today's message in this way. When you find yourself alone, you will find yourself enthroned. When you find yourself alone, you will find yourself enthroned. I'll explain what I mean. I mean that when you put yourself in a place where you do not have both the fullness of God's Holy Spirit through baptism and you do not have fellowship with other believers, then you will slowly but surely become the king of your own life. And just like Israel did, you will fall toward lostness. The world will tell you, you do you. Just take care of you. Make sure, make sure you're happy. I have dear brothers and sisters in Christ posting stuff like this on, on the internet all day, every day. I just got to take care of you. I don't know if that's true. At the beginning today, I spoke about some of the temptations I've faced over the years. I said something I said I wanted you to remember. I said I almost always chose what I wanted. What I wanted. (coughs) That's what temptation calls us to. Temptation calls us to focus on me, myself, and I. And yet when we journey with Jesus, the attention shifts. And I no longer live as king of my own life, do I? I live a life where Jesus is king. And so I want to get really, really practical for just a moment with all of us. Because you and I both deal with temptations of various kinds. Would we agree? Amen? Amen. Raise your hand if you don't deal with temptation. Okay, cool. As you sit here this morning, you might be hopelessly tempted by and addicted to drugs. And nobody knows. You might be lost in a daily battle with pornography, and nobody knows. You might surrender to to portions of food far beyond what you need. You might find the allure of men or women more than you know how to bear. You might jump headfirst into anger and aggression at a moment's notice. You might use language that you often regret. You might habitually cheat your employer out of your best effort. Pick your poison. We can keep going on for for hours on this stuff. I want you to raise your hand if you've ever felt like you were powerless over something in your life. Somebody said, no matter how hard I try, I just can't master this. I can't master it. You know, sometimes when we battle temptation, it becomes convenient to just sort of dump the blame on Satan. Ah, man, Satan made me do it. 
The Bible says in James chapter 1 that each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. So let me ask you, where does sin and temptation begin? It begins with who? Thank you, Corey. Right here. With me. It's a desire to serve me. It's a desire to make myself king. When you find yourself alone, you will find yourself enthroned. So how do we fight against it? How do we overcome temptation in our lives? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves what we can learn from Jesus. So you remember those three things we talked about? Number one, temptation is most deadly when we are alone. How do you combat that? You surround yourself with other believers, not other people, other believers, other people who are headed in the same direction that you are in every walk of life. You surround yourself with people who will challenge you, who will encourage you, who will remind you whose you are. This isn't original stuff. If you go to any Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or any Narcotics Anonymous meeting or any other anonymous meeting, this is one of the key things you learn right here. Surround yourself with people who are headed in the same direction you are. You cannot be alone. You will not succeed. One of the best ways to help with that, I think, is to join a fellowship group because it's there where you can finally say, you know what? This is what I'm dealing with this week. It's hard to do that here, but you can do that in a living room with eight or ten of your closest friends. Number two, by the power of the Holy Spirit, temptation can be overcome. The Bible tells us that we receive the Holy Spirit in baptism, just like Jesus did. And so if you have not been baptized, I want to encourage you to really think and pray about doing that. Because we can baptize you this morning if you want to be baptized. We have a little baptistry in there. We have the Pacific Ocean over there. I don't care where we do it. But if you want to get baptized, we can baptize you. And you can receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. So that when you go through the wilderness of your week, whatever that might be, are you alone anymore? You're not alone. You're not alone. And finally, number three, the Holy Spirit's weapon of choice is knowing the Word of God. My encouragement to all of us this morning is to become more than a token acquaintance with the Bible. It looks pretty on the shelf, I know, but it's better if you read it. It is so much better if you read it. Immerse yourself in it. Memorize the words that are in it. Learn to love God's Word. And in that speech that Moses gave, I'm kind of ad-libbing here, what what does Moses say? These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Talk about them when you lie down and when you get up and when you walk along the road and like tie them, bind them on on your your hands and your foreheads. I'm forgetting all the language there. But I mean, this whole point, take the word of God with you. Know the word of God. Invest in it fully. Read it daily. Learn to love God's word. And you will be equipped to combat temptation in the same way that Jesus did. And how did Jesus combat temptation? It is written. It is written. It is written. When we can say those three words, man, we have the power to do amazing things, to be victorious over temptation. So I want you to say these words with me again, church. When you find yourself alone, you will find yourself enthroned. One more time. When you find yourself alone, you will find yourself enthroned. Church, we're not designed to be alone. That was what Michael said in the communion devotional today. We're not designed to be alone. We're designed to love one another, to be with one another. Jesus calls us into communion with him 
and with one another. And so if you find yourself feeling alone this morning, I want to encourage you, invest in faithful relationships around you. Because alone is the most dangerous place you can be. When I think of sin in my life, every time sin has crept into my life, guess where I was? I was alone. If you look at your life, and the times when sin and temptation have been overpowering for you, have you been alone? I bet more often than not, you sure have been. Just because you had a person by your side doesn't mean you, you, were, you weren't alone. And that's, that's the seduction of, of friendships and stuff, is sometimes we, we don't realize how alone we really are because we're so distracted by the people in our car, or the people in our house, or whatever. If we are not walking in the same direction with other believers toward Christ, we might find ourselves alone.